0: You're listening to Freedom Christian Fellowship's podcast. All right. Well, good, good, good morning. Um, today we are taking a little bit of a break off of off of uh, our series going through Galatians 5 and the fruit of uh, the Holy Spirit. And today I am going to teach... Um, on something that the I feel like the Lord put on my heart, something I've been like working on and um, something also for me. I, I'm going to benefit from this too as a reminder, but I, I titled this message Four, Pill- Four Pillars to Raise Spiritually Healthy Children. Now, if you go, oh, man, I'm not in that child-rearing age anymore. Um, do you have kids? <laughs> yeah, you do probably. Um, and even if you don't, a lot of this information just transcends child-rearing. It goes into our own life, um, but I also like to subtitle this, or as it is in my case, as four ways not to mess up your kids, all right? Why? Because parenting is hard, all right? Parenting is hard. If, you've, if you're a parent or you've ever been a parent, it is hard work, and uh, even though our kids are wonderful and are great, parenting is hard work. So I really want us to to get into a place where we can hear the Holy Spirit, hear the Word of God, and just begin to glean off of some things, okay? Because these are things that we can put into our tool belt as parents if you've got uh, kids that you're still raising, or if you are older and your kids um, now have kids, you're a grandparent, it still applies. Um, and even also, just again, in our own life, how this can take root in our life. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the first um, 11 or so chapters of the book of Genesis. Now, we're not reading all that, so don't worry. We're going to look at four individual stories. One actually extends a little bit further into the Old Testament. And we're going to look at how God began to mature man after sin. Now, I want you really to listen to what I'm about to say, okay? Because you're going to have to, like, connect in here as I speak. Um... What happened, we know that shortly after creation, God gave a command to man, to Adam and to Eve, and said, look, don't don't eat of this particular tree. And yet, they were tempted into that, and Eve took, and then Adam partook of the forbidden tree that they were not supposed to eat of. And then all of a sudden, their world flipped 180, um, something that they were not created to understand. They were forced into understanding, and that was sin and that started if you would the infancy stage of humanity and god in his loving kindness had to teach man how to mature so that they could function and be who they were created to be does that make sense that that before sin we understood we had clarity we could we could talk with god just like the bible says that Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. They understood God. But all of a sudden, when sin came onto the earth, they tried to hide from the omnipresent God. Like, come on, all right? God's everywhere, and you tried to play hide and go seek with them. It doesn't work. And so their world changed, and they did not know how to live in this world that by their decisions they helped to create by their decision of disobedience. And so God in His loving kindness began to teach and reteach humanity how to function. And these truths parallel and they tie into how we raise our children as well. We can see this if we look, if we're willing to look close enough, how God wove these into the fabric of humanity and how He also gives these as truths when it comes to how we raise our kids and even in our own maturation process in our life, okay? So we're going to look at four stories. These stories are, and they deal with these things. The first is personal responsibility that deals, we'll see this in the story of how sin came into the earth with Adam and Eve. And then we're going to look at moral responsibility. And we're going to talk about the story of Cain and Abel. And then we're going to talk about collective responsibility. That's the story of Noah. And then we're going to go into actually a story that coincides with that further in Genesis with Abraham and then also in Exodus with Moses. And then we're going to talk about, this is a big word, it's ontological responsibility. And ontological means this, that it means that you live in the presence of a higher being. And we're going to talk about the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, if none of that sounds interesting, you don't worry it will and this is going to be encouraging because there's things that parents listen if you feel like you're not doing a good job parenting then I want you to just take a deep breath I want you to exhale I want you to just give yourself a break and understand that nobody parents well apart from the word of God nobody parents well apart from the grace of Jesus Christ and in his goodness, he is dispensing grace. So if you're missing something, don't worry. God is faithful. He's going to come in. He's going to give you what you need. If you will hear the word, if you will begin to walk by faith according to the word, he will do it. So put a big smile on your face. All right, so let's take a look at the first one. And this is a story of sin. We all know this story, but, but I'm just going to read one small part in Genesis 3, verse 12 and 13. It's, it's just a funny story. Because now that you know that we're coinciding this with how we raise children, you're going to probably laugh a little bit because you're going to see, or if you've raised little kids, you've absolutely heard this. And this is talking about personal responsibility. Genesis 3, 12 through 13, the man said, this is what he got busted. He's caught red-handed. His hand's in the cookie jar. God said, did you disobey? Did you eat a wrong tree, Adam? And Adam does this beautiful response the woman that woman oh that lady that lady who you gave to be with me all of a sudden it's funny let me stop and just make a little bit of light light-heartedness because when God knocks Adam out men just understand this please just hear this is a this is an extra little tidbit on this sermon God knocked Adam out and took his rib and created Eve and when Eve, when Adam woke up, he says this very special thing. That is a song. It is a song. This literally was a song. It was not words that he spoke, but a song he sang. So, guys, if you don't think you're musical, when you fall in love, you get musical, right? Girl, you're the only one for me. You know. And so he said, "You are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh." Yes, thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. And the angels gathered around. They dipped down. They kissed him. You know, it was beautiful. Now all of a sudden, fast forward to Genesis 3, this is the woman you gave me. <laughs> like, I, I didn't choose her. <laughs> she ain't that special. Listen to what he says. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord looked at the woman. Makes sense. What is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. And so this is the first time in humanity that we see this this primal excuse that if you've ever raised kids, little kids, you see this, and it's the, it wasn't me excuse. Did you take that? Uh Uh-uh, wasn't me. Did you break that? Uh Uh-uh, wasn't me. (laughs) Did you do this? Uh Uh-uh, wasn't me. If I'm in trouble, it wasn't me. But what we didn't realize is this, is that that first response from Adam and Eve was this, was the beginning of the victim mindset that strung out through creation. And God tried to nip it in the bud. It's amazing that the very first thing that happened at the introduction of sin was the absence of personal responsibility. See, here's the the thing that, of course, we understand, but when we stand back and we look at the layers of just an individual scripture and we, we hear the Holy Spirit speak, we know that God was not asking Adam and Eve if they did this because he did not know. Of course, God knew what they did. Of course, he knew what God was doing was giving them an opportunity to repent and humble themselves. And to invoke His grace. But the first response of sin was the lack of personal responsibility. And we see this in our children sometimes, don't we? See, God asked Adam if he sinned because He wanted to give him a chance to be honest and to repent. So how does this begin to coincide with how we begin to raise our children. What things need to be put into our kids' lives in order for them to see the importance of this? And why is this so important? Why is the idea of personal responsibility so significant? As I said just a few seconds ago, one of the reasons why is because it does create a victim mindset, and a victim mindset never puts you in charge of your own life. It never puts you in charge of your own destiny. And let me tell you this because sometimes, even in even sometimes, just let me say this very gently, in, in in our in our circle, that a lot of times we have a fatalistic understanding of the way God moves in our life. Sometimes we put the brakes on in our life too hard, even though we say God is calling us to do something. There is never a place in scripture where there is not collision and agreement between what God does in our work toward what He says to do. But see, what a victim mindset is this, is it always puts you in the passenger seat. It never puts you in the driver's seat. So the first thing that we need to put into our kids is that we have to teach them honesty. We have to teach them honesty. If if the children thing doesn't apply to you, then you need to be an honest person need to be an honest person. We need to teach our kids honesty even when they're wrong. Even when they're wrong. Why? Because honesty, I believe, is the foundational block of identity. See, when I think about this passage here in Genesis 3, when God gave them an opportunity, there's another part in here where God has a conversation with Adam and Eve and says they're naked and they knew it. They were hiding from God. And they, God asked them, Why are you naked? And, and, and why are you hiding? And they say, Because we're naked. And he says, Who told you you were naked? See, what happened is this is that the script was flipped in their identity. Because they begin to believe, not what they were created to be, but they begin to believe the product of their lie. They begin to believe the product of their lie. And so honesty is important because what honesty does is it puts us back under the framework of our identity. Now, parents, I want you to hear me on this. Your children can learn to hear God at a very early age, but they will also hear God through what you say. And your job is to speak God's identity into them. I can't tell you how many times that my wife would say over and over again to my kids that they are sweet, that they are kind, that they uh, love God, that they be, that God loves them, that they were the apple of God's eye, and just begin to pound that in. And when we begin to come against God's law, even as small children do, and they begin to learn these boundaries, and, and please hear me on this, okay is what's happening is that there is so much more than just a simple lie that's taking place, but it is coming against the framework of their identity. I hope that makes sense. But for honesty to be taught, there has to be some systems in place. The first system that has to be in place in your home is the understanding of right and wrong. The understanding of right and wrong is that there has to be some ground rules in your home and things that line up under both the what God says and then also the values of your home. If you want peace, then don't let your kids scream at each other. If you want to have a place where that there's some time for family time, then it, you have to turn other things off. And so you have a system of values, and then when there is a system of values in place, then your children know what's right and wrong, and I want to tell you something, parents. It's it might be countercultural in some ways, but that our children operate better when they understand that safety net. Okay, let me give you just a practical illustration of this because I, I feel like some of this is whew, all right. So when our kids start to go out with their with friends, and they just say, "Mom, Dad, we want to spend the night. We want to do this," we always wanted to know, of course who they're going to go to, the families that they're going to go to. We wanted to know the families. But if they were just even going out for the evening just to let go to a movie or something like that, we always set a ground rule in place for them. We said, listen, if there's any ever any trouble, you call us. You don't have to say why. You don't have to even tell us what's going on on the phone. You just pick up the phone and you say, hey, and we'll know, and we'll know where to get you. Another thing we did is that we put them on what's called a Life 360 app. So we know where they are. And some of, us go, some of us go, look, well, isn't that a little invasive? Doesn't that push on some of these boundaries that we have? No, and actually, contrary to that, what it does is it says that there's a tremendous amount of safety there. That my parents care that there is a boundary there. And our children need to understand that there are boundaries in place that, that speak to right and wrong. See, God did that at the very beginning. He did that with Adam and Eve. He said, listen, and sometimes we we, we get confused with that, and you'd be surprised from a theological perspective, uh, an understanding of who God is. That as a pastor, I get this question more than you can even imagine. Well, how could God, who controls everything, ever give the opportunity for man to sin? Well, it's called free will. It's the part, the image of God that we're created in. But we sight of some things sometimes that the entirety of the garden was open to Adam and Eve except for this one area that would bring such a disastrous curse upon humanity. And all Adam had to do and Eve had to do was stay in that place and that boundary was there. And see, boundaries protect. And this is why we have to have them in our homes. And the second system that has to be in place that's equally important is that there has to be forgiveness and blessing. There has to be forgiveness and blessing. We have to have a healthy response when our children are at a crossroads at, uh, of honesty or even when they've blown honesty, when they've crossed the line of, into disobedience. And, and I, I knew full well as I was preparing for this that I was going to have to share some, some things that were close to my heart. And and I want you to understand the only reason why I am doing this is because I want this to really resonate at home with you. There was a time with my son that he crossed the line in a certain area of his life. And we found out about it and I brought my son into my room. And initially I was boiling mad. I was so upset. I, was, I felt disgraced and dishonored. I, there were some things that just happened that, that I was going through, and I sat him down on my bed, and I said, son, I actually knelt on the so, other side of my bed, and my son was standing up on the other side of my bed, and I put my head in my pillow, and I began to cry, and I said, son, you don't understand that there is nothing that you will ever do that will make me love you less than I do right now. I love you so much but what I need you to do is I need you to be honest with me. And my son began to cry, and he said, yeah, Dad, I, I, I did this, I shouldn't have, and I won't ever do it again. And he made his life accountable in this area, and he said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not doing... I'm, and he, but there was, a, there was a boundary of forgiveness and grace and blessing. And you have to see that as parents because this is the thing that God was was putting in there into the fabric of humanity with Adam and Eve as he gave them an opportunity to say, listen, yes, we blew it and we're sorry. I hope that makes sense. All right, let's move on to the second one. This is the story of Cain and Abel. And this is about moral responsibility. Alright, in Genesis 4, 8 and 9. This is the, what Cain said to God. It says Cain spoke to Abel his brother when they were in the field, and Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Whoa. Boy, Cain, way to tip it over the edge there, buddy. Here we see a couple of significant things in this story, and it's the first time where moral responsibility is put in the forefront of humanity because this is the first murder that we see recorded in the Bible. But what makes this so significant? And sometimes we get jaded because we live in a culture where murder is not uncommon, unfortunately. And so here we see the very first murder in all of creation. But it's not just the first murder. It's the murder committed. This murder has been committed between siblings. (laughs) And I just want you to think about this for a second because this speaks to the infancy of the maturity within humanity, that Cain could get to a place where he could get so irate. And if you're not familiar with this story, that what was happening between he and his brother Abel is that they both sacrificed to God. And in a nutshell, Abel sacrificed some of his flock, and Cain had, was, was a farmer. And, but what Abel did was this, is he sacrificed the very best of what he had, which is a reflection of our life and a reflection of the tithe. And so Abel sacrificed and God was pleased with that and God wasn't really pleased with Cain because Cain's sacrifice, Cain, Cain's sacrifice was an afterthought. But what turned out of this was just horrific because here's what we see is that the first time in all of humanity that there is an absence of moral responsibility. And we see this because of this. It was the decision in free will to commit murder. And this is mirrored in in Abel's and Cain's response. And he says to God, am I my brother's keeper? That in his free will, he took no responsibility for his brother. But the second part of moral responsibility puts together not just my free will, but what I deem to be either praiseworthy or punishable. And this means this, that if I have the opportunity and I don't like what I see, then I'm going to do something about it. Or if I like what I see, then I'm going to praise it. Apart from any kind of moral oversight, it is strictly up to me. And this is exactly what happened with Cain and Abel, is that Cain got so mad, so angry, that he deemed it okay to just kill his brother. Think about that for a second. That's awful. See, Cain did not learn the difference between what it meant between what I can do and what I may do. All he understood is what he could do. Whatever I can do seems justifiable to me, seems okay to me. But Cain failed to understand that he could not respond the way that he wanted to, but had a moral responsibility for his actions. Simply said that, Cain's moral compass was broken. Now, this is really, really important because in young children, especially, we see this. I'm picking on my son, my son, a bunch today. But I think you'll find this story humorous. But my buddy, I call him my buddy, my son was a little guy. I miss him. He had a a set of drums, (laughs) he was little. That's a that's a dumb dad gift, by the way, dads. Just know that if you got little kids, don't buy them drums. All right, just don't just don't do that. That will so backfire in your in your life um, because they don't know when to stop, and that will just make you angry. But he had a little uh, little drumstick, and one one night, boy, he just whacked his sister with the drumstick. Bap, bap, like he just didn't even care. Like something in his little brain just went. I don't know if she touched his drums. I don't know what happened, but the trigger went off, and he just started to go to town on like like his sister's head was a tom, you know, like a tom tom, ba ba ba, you know. <laughs> I took that drumstick. Whoo! I'm gonna tell you, don't do what I did. I broke his drumstick. I said, "No, son, you not. Uh, uh-uh, uh, don't. Mm-mm. No, no." And I'm not even saying that was the best approach. And listen to me. I'm not coming up here and saying, parents, I've got this figured out. I don't. I'm still learning. I still got kids, and I'm still making mistakes, and I'm still learning. But what had to happen is that there had to be some understanding of moral responsibility because we can't just do what we want to do when we get upset or we get angry or we feel like it's a good thing. There has to be something that guides us. God put this into the law of humanity, this principle into humanity as they grew and as they matured. In our children, what do we have to teach them in order for them to learn this? That they have to be attached to a higher truth of morality. The first thing that we have to do is we have to model it. We have to model it. We have to model it. Can, can I just, oh, man, I think I'm going to get in trouble. All right, I'm going to try not to. I'm going to speak about me. How about that? When I watched my son's soccer games, when he played, and when I watched my daughter's volleyball games, sometimes I like to be that dad that gets up, and pounds his chest and yells at the ref. Sometimes I like to be that dad that runs down to the sideline and goes, Hey, ref, have you gotten your eyes checked lately, buddy? I don't say it like that. Sometimes I get upset and I get angry. We live in an area where we understand that what we do for our kids is very important. We live in an area where we like to enjoy sports, especially with our children. But when we talk about modeling, what it looks like to live under moral responsibility, let me just give an imperative to you. You can't teach moral responsibility and then act like you have no responsibility at the ballpark. If you can't restrain yourself in your car, you can't teach moral responsibility. If you can't watch your words while you talk to the television, (laughs) you're going to struggle creating moral responsibility. There's areas that we have to model. Moral responsibility has to be modeled. It has to be modeled. Yes, there are times we all blow it. There are times that I blow it more times than I care to admit And in those times, we have to humble ourselves, and we have to ask forgiveness, and we have to be very clear to communicate this is not the right model. So when we blow it, we ask for forgiveness. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, is that we have to teach our children gentleness. We have to teach. If this is something that I could get up with a megaphone and scream from the highest point in our country, I would. Because we have lost sight of gentleness in our country. And we have to teach our children how to be gentle. That is not unmasculine. That is not something reserved for one sex or the other. It is something that every person needs to understand. They need to understand how to be gentle. How to be gentle in their words, how to be gentle in their actions. This is one thing that we worked on with our kids. And part of that is this, is that they have to, again, see gentleness shown in their homes. The third thing that has to happen is this, is that we have to teach our children how to process their feelings even when they're mad. That our kids need to understand that it's important to talk, to not just use their words. I hear that a lot. Use your words, use your words. But we have to also understand both perspectives. Like when you kids are mad. I can't tell you, parents, you understand this, that your kids will come home and there's been some great injustice that's been committed in the last six hours of their life. Somebody said something, some teacher did something, it's been been done, and we go, oh, we want to jump into that reactionary mode, don't we? And we want to jump in and be like, how dare anybody hurt our kids? If anybody messes with my baby, I'm going to come unglued. We do this, but we fail to do this one thing. Fail to teach moral responsibility because part of moral responsibility is the ability to adjust and understand. And part of understanding is seeing both perspectives. And so we sit down patiently and sometimes painfully and we spend the time saying, Well, what do you think that person was going through? What was their perspective? Were they hurt too? Because, listen, the truth of the matter is, and it's very scriptural, that if you compound hurt, all you're doing is multiplying it and sending it down the line. But there has to be something in place that breaks hurt. And it only takes somebody that stands up and says, I live unto something different. I'm guided by a different moral compass. I'm guided by the love of the Lord. You see that? So we have to teach our children that. We have to teach our children to show compassion have understanding, and to have balance. And then finally, we have to stress to our children that our behavior has implications past themselves. That if you do, if you're raising older kids, and your children are in a place where they're saying, look, there's something that I want to do, a a bit of freedom that I want to have. When our children learned how to drive, we stress this, that you need to be wise. You need to stay off your phone when you drive. Why? Because your decisions have implications past themselves. You better be careful what you put in your mouth. You You better Careful, kids, what you send on the phone because it doesn't go away. See, there's things that have implications past themselves, and these are conversations that we have to have. And this is, in essence, what was taking place between Cain and Abel, what God began to again put into the fabric of humanity as humanity matured, as they grew. Now let me pause and say something really quick because this is really important for us to understand because sometimes we have the wrong understanding of of how the earth was after sin. We think that automatically we we were living, they were living as perfect people walking on the earth. No, they were living in a deeply, deeply burdened civilization. Very much apart from God in every way. But God again in His loving kindness brought Himself back into every situation to remind them of that, to keep a string of righteousness, to grow humanity throughout the process. And I want you to see that because we have to do the same things. All right, let's keep going. Let's talk about the story of Noah, Abraham, and Moses. And this speaks of the collective responsibility. In Galatians 5, this is what was spoken about Noah. It says in Lamech, this is Noah's dad. Lived 182 years, and he fathered his son, and he called him Noah, saying, out of the grounds that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. See, God saw something in, the, in humanity. He saw that overall humanity was wicked. And in his heart, he made a decision that he wasn't going to tolerate humanity the way it was. But he kept a string of righteousness on the earth. And this was the beginning of what I believe is intercession or collective responsibility. And maybe for some of you, outside of this idea of the things that we need to put to our children, this will stress the importance of intercessory prayer. How important being an intercessor and interceding for our city and for our nation is. Well, of course, we know the story of Noah, that he built an ark, that he saved humanity in himself. But this was just the first step. The next time we see something similar to this is with Abraham at Sodom. His nephew Lot is living there, and God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm destroying that land, that piece of land that that Lot chose to live in, that Abraham gave him the option and Lot chose to be there. And so what does Abraham do? And we see this this story in Genesis 18, 22 through 23, is that Abraham begins to have a conversation with God, and he says, listen, for the sake of 50 people, 50 righteous people, will you save, will you save Sodom? And God says, sure, and Abraham quickly realizes that there's not 50 righteous in Sodom, and he whittles it all the way down to 10, and what is Abraham doing is he's taking collective responsibility. He didn't need to. He could have said, just let me get my nephew Lot out of there. Let me, let me just give me, give me a few hours. Let me get him out of Dodge and then destroy the place. But instead, he stood up and he had a conversation with God. Next, We see this is with Moses in Exodus 32, 7-14. And this is when Moses is on Sinai talking to God, getting the law of God. He had been up there for a long time, and the people of Israel at the base of the mountain there encamped began to complain, and they looked at Aaron, Moses' brother, and they said, we need something to worship. Just a nutty idea. But they needed something to guide their lives. And so, of course, what did Aaron do? we know the story? He said, bring me all your gold. And he formed and fashioned a a golden calf out of the, the gold. And so all of a sudden, God catches a whiff of it. And he looks down at Moses and he says, Moses, move move out of the way. Because I'm going to destroy Israel and I'm going to bring the generation of promise through you. I don't need all these people. I'm going to destroy them. I'm sorry that I brought them out of Egypt. I'm, I'm They're done. And what does Moses do? Moses looks back up to God and says, God, I want you to remember the promise that you gave to your sons Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want to remind you of who you are. And and Moses intercedes for the people of Israel who are dead in sin, quite literally. And he says no. And all of a sudden, God relents. And I want to tell you something about this, and this speaks to collective responsibility here, is that God, God wasn't having these conversations, and these are the very few times when we read them, we, we feel like man changed God's mind. And i want to tell you something, that is extremely rare error. Because man can't change God's mind. What man did was remind God of who he was. God wanted to know if man knew who God was. And this is the essence of collective responsibility. When begin to in behalf of people who are hurting and broken, to care about them, to desire to comfort them, to bring peace to them. This is in essence what Christianity is. And it has to be taught. It has to be taught. Do you know why we do shoeboxes and second Saturday and the Sunday before Christmas and more if we have the opportunity? Why? Because we are the compassion of Jesus Christ on the earth. But our children have to learn this. This is collective responsibility because when we live for ourselves alone, we become an island. And the problem is this. In all gentleness and all grace... That we're too comfortable cutting off people that aren't like us, and it is not the nature of God. So, what do we have to put in to our children? We have to put in compassion, the ability to see those who are hurting and care for them, to defend them. My wife did a is doing a wonderful job with our kids. With this. Should we them all the time? Do you see a kid sitting at a table at lunch all by themselves? Then invite them to sit with you or go sit with them. It's simple. Maybe it's life changing, maybe it's not. But it's kind of like the first fruit of compassion. And to teach that into our children, the idea that in compassion is important. To recognize, to see, see needs, to look at yourself as somebody who is able to meet needs. That's the essence of compassion. The second thing is this, is that we have to teach our children to have consideration and to share. I think Barney the purple dinosaur said it best. He said, sharing is caring. Sharing is caring. Well, we've got the funniest, the funniest video of my daughter Abigail. Abigail. When she was just a little one with my daughter Anna, and they're having a birthday. And Anna gets has a a princess, a birthday princess little crown on. And Abby walks up and convinces her to give her that crown. And we got it on video, and she puts that crown on. She says, see look, Abby, Anna, it looks better on me. <laughs> That's not sharing. Abby, that's not sharing. Uh, We have to consider and value other people's situations and experiences. Considering what we can do to make a difference. We have to teach children this. We need to teach children as they get older about a vocation where they don't just work for money, but they work for value. That they do what God's called them to do because when you do what God's called you to do, you make a difference. And I want to say this, it doesn't mean that working in a refinery has no value. That's absolutely false. That's a lie. I could tell you many stories. I could tell you the story of my father-in-law who got saved in the locker room of a refinery because somebody was there who preached the gospel to him. I can tell you the fact of guys who work and they say, listen, my job is to sow into the kingdom and they sow into children and orphans and other countries and they do that. But the point is this, is that they have a a value, that their vocation serves something greater than just themselves. And this is important when it comes to those fundamental foundational years within an adolescent where they're making the decision on what they're going to do. The parents, we have to teach them that. I hope that makes sense. And then we need to teach them the power of prayer and how it correlates to the promises of God. This is active intercession. That prayer makes a difference, especially when we see broken people and situations and things in our schools or our homes or our communities that we can't change. That we have to teach our children how to, how to do this, how to, how to infuse this based on the promises of God and what He has said regarding these places that they live and that they operate, how they see their school, how they see their community, how they see the world to come, that when they understand that there are promises that God has given, that He asks us to pray according to and to intercede, that He begins to move. And they have to see this. And finally, the story of the Tower of Babel, and this is ontological responsibility. Justin, come on up, or Mike. Thanks, man. In Genesis 11, 1 through 4, this is the story of the building of the Tower of Babel. It says that the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come. Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This happens at a very interesting time in the history of humanity. It's post-flood. And we see here, and we look at we say sometimes if I'm honest when I read this, I, I kind of look and I see that God's response seems a little harsh here because we know the end of the story is that God came down and He gave them all different languages so they couldn't communicate anymore and they scattered out all over the earth. And this one's a little different from the other three because the other three deals they deal with how we interact with each other. Or this this fourth one deals with how to teach our children how to interact with God. See, there's a couple of things that stand out here in this passage. And they deal with a couple of words. But ontological responsibility is defined as the value for a higher presence for God. And what happened here is that the people came together And they began to think in terms of an age-old lie that struck man at the very beginning of creation. It's the first lie that the devil, that the serpent fed Eve and Adam, said, no, God just doesn't want you to be like Him. Because when we break down this passage, we see these two words, and the first word is this, the earth, and the second word that we see is the heavens. And this draws our eye back to the very first passage of Scripture in Genesis 1, the very first verse. And it says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, the understanding was this, is that the heavens are God's, are God. They belong to God. And that the earth is ours. As a matter of fact, when you go back and you look at the story of creation, what you see is, at, is God turning over to Adam the keys to the earth and giving him authority and dominion on the earth. And all of a sudden, when we fast forward to Genesis 11, what we see is man beginning to say, look, we're pretty good. We're pretty powerful. We're going to do something audacious. We're going to build a, a structure that's going to stretch into the heavens. And that word heavens, it means where God dwells. That's what I want you to see. They weren't just saying we were going to build something high in the air, a skyscraper. They, they said, listen, we're going to go up and be like God. And they lost sight of the ontological perspective that lived as an inferior people to a higher power. They lived under the authority of God. They lost sight of this. And God touched their minds and touched their lips and scattered them. So in our children, there's some important things that we have to put into them. See, because there's a big difference between understanding that there's a God and then really living for Him. See, this picture, it it draws something just crystal clear, at least for me, is this. Is that we can live with the knowledge of God and not know God. See, it's not God's desire to... To mess people up so they don't think that they are Him. That's not God's desire. It's it's God's desire for man to live in harmony with Him. To have relationship with Him. To love Him. To know Him. And so we have to teach our children several things. The first thing is what they can learn. And we need to teach our children covenant and compassion of God. The covenants and compassion of God. And here's how the covenants go. God wanted to be with man. He always wants to be with man. He loves man. If you need a snapshot of who God is, that's it in a nutshell. That God loves man and wants to be with man. If it was not so, he wouldn't have created man. If it weren't so, he wouldn't have contended with man. He wouldn't have come back and repetitively put himself and interjected himself into man, even though man hated him wouldn't have done it, but God created man because He loves man and wants to be with man. And this is how the covenants go. It's seen from Adam to Abraham. Then from Abraham to Moses. Then Moses to David. And then to David to Jesus. The perfect covenant. But if you ever read the Bible and you get twisted up on who God is because you read some stories in the Old Testament, you missed it. You lost the forest through the woods. And you need to stand back and you need to God, you are the God who has always loved man and you've proven it because you swore to yourself throughout the, from the beginning of time until now until the perfect covenant of Jesus Christ and you've proven it and we have to teach our children this. You know why? Because you can't refute love. They're going to encounter people and professors and they go to college that are much smarter than you and me. They're going to tell them that the Bible doesn't make sense on so many levels, but you can't refute love. And if children understand how to come to God in love, then there's something that will stick to them and stay with them their whole life. You have to teach them. The Holy Spirit will let them experience it. They have to hear it. In the home, you have to speak the promises of God. This is what this looks like in the home. And I just want to encourage you with this and fire you up with this. Is that God has given you as parents a unique responsibility. And it, I don't care if you're a single parent. I don't care if you are, have, have a mixed family. I don't care what you have. If you're a grandparent, this is a responsibility God has given you. And it's such a precious, powerful responsibility. You have to speak prophetically over your kids. You have to speak prophetically over your kids. Your children should never wonder why they've been created and the gifts of God in them and why they're special and how God built them and created them. And if you struggle with that, say, God, show me, show me, show me. Get together with somebody and pray and say, God, please show me. I'll join with you and I'll do it. We'll prophesy over every one of our kids if we have to. Why? Because it sets the firm foundation of identity and future inside of them. I get fired up about it. I love it. Speak the promises. Sometimes we feel like, if, again, I feel like I'm. I don't want to be too hard here. I really want to be gentle. But sometimes we feel, we feel like if we just get them in church. I wish that was enough. I really do. I promise you. And let me tell you something. It's 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 a good start. You can't forsake church, but. It's so much more than that. You have to speak the promises and you have to speak prophetically and you have to have a testimony of the goodness of God. Man, I love, I love, I love. My kids get tired of hearing me tell the stories about my parents. They get tired of hearing me tell a story about how my drug-addicted brother got set free. My wife reminds them all, that when we've moved from different places that she gathered the kids up and they prayed about the schools and the houses that we lived in. And she reminds them and says, look, Anna, you prayed for this and God gave us that house. Did you see that? And that's just like a little sweet kiss from God. And we just looks down and says, yeah, I'm just going to put a testimony of my goodness in your life. Why? Because it's irrefutable. It's wonderful. It goes hand in hand with what we help them build. That we have to help our children build a history with God. We have to remind them that it's always a good time to stop and pray. It's always a good time to listen to the Lord. That they can hear the Lord. That God can speak to them. And then what they see. And this is through all four of these things, these principles. But they absolutely need, they must see the truth of God modeled in our life. They have to see the Holy Spirit's power modeled in your life. I can think of so many times and so many ways in our, in our family that that's happened. I can think of times and sometimes it didn't. Now parents, I want to say this just in conclusion and we're done. Is that these things, every one of these things are so important for us to put into our children's lives and we we need these things in there. But if you're lacking in one of these areas, I don't want you to think for a half second that you're a bad parent because you're not. Because there's not a parent The face of the earth, no matter how good they were or how good they weren't. That didn't make a mistake a time or two. And I just want to declare something over you parents, is this is I want you to just rest in the peace of the Lord in the name of Jesus. Because there is somebody who loves your kids so much more than you do, and that's God. He really does. I'll never forget. Nah, nah I'm just, I'm, a, I'm playing the plane. Don't worry, folks. When my mom got ALS, and I was sitting in her office, and fear surrounded me, and I began to just get fearful. I was fearful. I was young. I was in my early 20s, and I was, I was young. I was a new dad. I was working here. It was really the best part of my life, was being here. It helped me in so many ways. But I looked at my mom, who forever had been an anchor in my life with spiritual things. And I said, Mom, I'm worried about this, and I'm worried about this. And and really what I wanted more than anything from my mom was for my mom to give me some answers, to do what she had always done. It's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. You're overreacting. Just chill out, blah, 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 blah. My mom looked at me and she said something that just hit me to the core of my heart. And she looked at me and said, Andy, you're going to have to trust the Lord. you have to take a step and you're going to have to trust the Lord. And I'll tell you something, that's the greatest thing. And a gift that I think my, my mom ever gave me is to say, Andy, there, there's a point in time when you live under, and you've seen modeled, and you see this trust, that it's not just me that you're drafting off of. You're not, just, you're not just living under my wing, but you did this so that you could one day stand up and say, God, I trust you too. And parents, that's what we want. And that's what's going to happen. See, you're going to raise kids who are going to do great things. You're going to raise kids who are going to be world changers. You are going to raise kids that are going to walk in faith, that are going to hear the voice of God. You are going to raise kids who are going to be powerful in the name of Jesus. And so I want you to take a deep breath. And if there's anything that you heard today where you go, man, I fall short or I just, it just, I'm not there. And I want you to say, what we all need to say is this, Holy Spirit, help me. Because it's only by your grace that we can do this. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet. I want to pray over you parents. Some of you are parents... Still dealing with adult children. some of you. Parents of toddlers. Oh, just grace and peace over them, Jesus. Rest. Some of y'all have babies, oh my. And you just wish. Parents to be, that you're on the threshold. And some of you are parents that want to be parents. bless you. So Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, Lord, just an overwhelming touch of your grace right now in Jesus' name. God, it's not about "Lord take our eyes to the areas that maybe we messed up or we went wrong, God. And let us fall for your arms of grace. Every one of us needs your help in this area. And so we look firmly to you, Holy Spirit, and we ask you to resource us in our weakness, that we can begin to teach and lead our children in a way. That they would understand who you are. And they live fully, Jesus. And God, first and foremost, I say this, Lord, that there's areas in my life, Lord, even as I looked at this, that I fall short in. And God, I need your help. I need your help in my reaction. I'm a man under authority. That I live under your authority and that I live passionately for you, Jesus. Just pray on the name of Jesus, a hedge of protection over, Lord, our children, Lord, our adult children, our faraway children, God, even the ones that are used to be. Father, I declare a protection around every one of them in the name of Jesus. God, I thank you first and foremost, Lord God, that they hear your voice. Their ears are your voice. We God open that. That, Lord, there would be prophetic things spoken into their life concerning their future, God, that would set their lives in motion to what they are called to be. And, God, we thank You, Lord God, that most of all, that, that nothing, Father God, that comes against them, not sickness, not harm, Lord, not anything planned by the enemy, Lord God, will prosper against them in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank You. We thank You, Lord, for who You are in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Oh. My mic went out. Sorry. I don't know if y'all heard that or not. Pray again. No, I'm just kidding. Nah, nah, nah. No. Listen, I love y'all so much. Thank you guys. Thank you guys. And I'm, listen, it's such. Such a great day. Such a great day. So this is what I want you all to do, okay? When you all leave here, instead of eating lunch, I want you to go and buy your kids ice cream, okay? Just go do that, right? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Listen, let me bless you. Father, we just bless you in the name of Jesus. We bless you in the name of Jesus. God, I just pray for anybody here who is dealing with a physical issue in their body. God, Holy Spirit, just touch them exactly where they are. Or in that place of pain, that place of need, Lord, whether it's a spine, Lord, whether it's a bad report, in the name of Jesus, touch them, heal them. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, I declare your grace over every person. Your name is great, Jesus. Amen. We love you so much.